I think it's really sad that at this point in in, in this American experiment that identities are anchored in in our opinions instead of our values. Mm-hmm. Right. So I define myself based on what I believe is true and false, as opposed to saying I define myself as somebody who values generosity and freedom um, or curiosity and integrity. Um, and I think one of the missed opportunities, I think, for in a lot of these conversations is to say, you know what, regardless of what you believe is true or false, let's talk about what you think is important. I'm Ilaria Baldwin. And I'm Alec Baldwin. And this is our podcast, What's One More? Our guest today can talk about so much. He's a fascinating intellectual who covers a lot of ground. He's a best-selling author of five books. He's been named 40 Under 40 by Fortune magazine, and he was the youngest tenured professor at Wharton at the age of 28. His TED Talks have been viewed over 25 million times, and he hosts the TED original podcast, Work Life. We are excited to chat with Adam Grant today. We want to delve into what makes people original thinkers, how we can be better leaders, and what things make him optimistic. Plus, finding inspiration in what we can do and battling the negative mindset in those around us. His new TED Talk on languishing is available now. Here's our conversation with Adam Grant. I'm a perfect example of toxic positivity. Like if I'm giving advice to somebody like with you, you know, you're like sad about something. And I'm like, but isn't it really great to like just be alive today? And I'm not allowing you to have your feelings. Adam, am I explaining that properly? Yeah, I think it's actually interesting to think about it as something internal as opposed to social. Um, When I think about toxic positivity, I think about the pressure that people feel to always put on a happy face and smile and be upbeat no matter what, um, which just completely crowds out the opportunity to say I'm burned out. I'm anxious, I'm depressed, um, I'm frustrated, I'm mad, right? And I think, I don't know, I think of it as an American problem in some ways because we are the most positive, the most optimistic country on earth as far as I can tell. Do you feel that? you believe that? I do. I think it's in true. In travels, you've seen that? Yeah, I think that I've seen it personally and I think psychologists often find that in other countries when you say, how are you? People will say, eh, Okay, but here it's, I am great. I am living my best life. Yeah, they cover. We assume you don't really want to know the answer to that question. Well, I think that that might be part of it as well. Like when people are like, do you really want to know? Because I'm not great right now. I'm I'm actually, it's COVID. It's really sucks right now. (laughs) And it's maybe that people won't give you the the time and day for it. My brother would say, um, you know, my brother doesn't live in this country. And he will say the fact that I connect so much with this country is because like, I'm like constantly like going, 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 going. He's like, if somebody tells me I'm mediocre, I'm like, great. I've got my life. I've got my wife. I've got my son. Life is good. The sunshine is sun- like, it's just fine. I'm good. Whereas you're like, if you if you call me mediocre, I'm like, what? I have to go. What? I'm like, I have to be better and better and better. And maybe that has something to do with it as well, is that we're just constantly going. And if we tell people that we're not okay, then we're not in the game. We're not competitive. Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a term for that too. It's often called American exceptionalism. And the idea oh. is that we, we can't just be great. We have to be the best. <laughs> so, I mean, in so many other parts of the world, good enough is actually good enough, but not here. Do you think that people are becoming more disclosive about their pain and more honest about their pain in this country because of the pandemic? I hope so. 
that might be a silver lining in the long run that we, we actually start to open up about what's really going on in our lives. And we get the freedom to, I guess, to normalize struggle as opposed to expecting that we have to put on sort of the most, uh, the most positive face, even if we're not feeling it. I wonder, um, Alec, when you were talking, it reminded me of a brilliant article that David Kessler wrote last year in the spring when the pandemic first started. And he said, that emotion you're feeling is grief. I thought what was so interesting about his observation was it went way beyond the obvious. Of course, you know, people, many people are facing real loss during COVID. And so they're grieving loved ones. But he said, all of us are grieving the loss of normalcy. And I think in some ways we're going through another wave of it now with the Delta variant that we came into yeah. the summer expecting that we were finally moving forward. Um, we we actually started living normal life again in, in June and July, right? And now we're back and we're grieving the loss of normalcy for a second time. I mean, those especially the first handful of months, I mean, you got, we kind of look back and we're like, you know, between the loss and the fear and, and the solitude, you know, the idea of, of doing that again is really, really scary. We all had that glimmer of hope and then it was just taken away from us and snatched from beneath our feet. And I think that's, um, sometimes psychologists talk about secondary loss, which is the idea of, you know, there's the primary loss, um, you know, your, your life has been disrupted. But there's also the secondary loss of now I have to cope with all these extra feelings and right. I have like, I, I, I no longer know what to do with that. That's interesting. Now, you have a, a new TED talk coming out on languishing. And what I'm interested in is we had this idea of like, OK, be positive, the toxic positivity. And now at least how I've curated my Instagram is I'm seeing a lot of emotion and a lot of like, I follow a lot of psychologists and all these different, I mean, I follow you when you always have like the most amazing, concise nuggets of wisdom out there. And then I wonder though, with languishing, you know, do we need to go through a phase of wallowing and how do we not get stuck in the wallowing and get to a point of like, I will trudge on, especially, you know, even as parents, like, you know, what, what, what is the languishing that we do in front of our kids and allow it to say, yeah, this is really hard, but we go on. And how do we not be toxic positive with that whole thing? I'm, I'm just confused. Even my question is confusing. I, I think we're all confused. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I first wrote about languishing in the spring and I thought, I thought it was over. And now we're in another wave of that too, because suddenly the, it feels like the whole world is stagnating again. So let's, right. let's talk a little bit about languishing. So psychologists usually define it as a sense of emptiness, like you're in a void and you kind of feel like you're looking at life through a foggy windshield. Um, it's sort of meh or blah. And I think the most interesting part of it is people often, they don't even notice it because it's not like there's the presence of mental illness. You're not depressed. You're not burned out. Um, it's just sort of the absence of well-being. You're missing the peak joy, the sense of meaning and purpose that you normally have when you're flourishing. And I think because of that, languishing can lurk below the surface. And when you don't recognize it, then you feel it for a long time. You don't necessarily make changes to your life. And the risk is then that it becomes something worse and you actually do start to develop depression or anxiety. I think that my, I mean, my favorite starting point here is recognizing that naming it can help, right? Psychologists sometimes say, name it to tame it. Uh, that when you you realize you're languishing, uh, first of all, you could put these, you know, these strange experiences. People kept saying, I'm in a pandemic fog and I'm having trouble concentrating and I'm not looking forward to the year, even though I got vaccinated. And just not being able to put your finger on what that is, I think was, uh, that was frustrating for a lot of people. And so, you know, just saying, oh, 
I'm languishing. That's a that's a thing. That's an experience. Um, right. It starts to it starts to make it feel real, uh, and you also realize you're not alone. A lot of people are languishing. The other thing that naming it does for a lot of people is it allows them to realize, okay, I haven't lived through a pandemic before. Um, I guess if you're 104, maybe you have, but you probably don't remember it. Um, but when you say you're languishing, you realize, you know what? I've languished before. And so maybe I can look back to other times when I felt like I was stagnating and I was kind of, eh, and I can learn lessons from what got me through that. And I think that's a conversation we should be having right now is what are other points in your life that you were languishing and what was it that helped you bounce back or bounce forward? When you are writing your books, how do you personally as a writer see things differently now because of the pandemic? Oh, that's interesting. Um, how do I see things differently because of the pandemic? I think... In terms of research, writing. Yeah, I think, well, this this theme of uncertainty and unpredictability obviously is is looming much larger than than it ever did before for me. I think in some ways, you know, a loss of control, it, it seems like was the dominant theme of 2020 for many people. And I think that that, that means that like so many of us are feeling helpless. You know, the, it's another layer of, of pandemic challenges is I, I can't, I can't stop COVID. I can't even talk my friend right. into considering a vaccine, right? So right. like what, what in the world can I do? And I think the, the best antidote I know of to, to helplessness is, is helpfulness, right? Feeling like you have a contribution to make, like you matter. And I think as a writer, one of the things I've been trying to figure out is what, what can we actually do to allow people to, like, even, even if it's simple five-minute favors, um, to see the the opportunities in their lives to to add a little bit of value to somebody else, and I it's something I've been studying for years. But the the piece of it that, that's new is all of a sudden we don't run into people anymore and find out how we could help. Um, okay. It used to be you know you'd you'd stop for coffee and you'd walk to the bus or the train or you'd be in the airport right and you you see small things you can do to lift up somebody else's life, and now every interaction we have is planned. There's no spontaneity in, in COVID world, or at least there's a lot less than there used to be. And I think one of the things that that, that lack of spontaneity took away from us uh, was also the chance to feel helpful without having to organize some attempt to say, okay, I am now going to volunteer for the next two and a half hours over Zoom, which doesn't help anybody. Uh, and I think that's <laughs> that's been hard. That's been really hard. So I don't, I don't know if that's relevant or not, but that's what, yeah. that's what the question sparked. But I want to also ask you how you feel, what your opinion is about a very specific anxiety I feel, which is uh, looking out at the world now and realizing that a staggering percentage of people in the world, they're not willing to do what I think they're supposed to do in terms of the vaccine. The helplessness I feel at the, at the mercy of the anti-vaxxers, that variants will continue to evolve because some people won't get a vaccine. Do you have any thoughts about that? Oh, how many hours do you have? Anti-vaccine anxiety. Yeah, I have never heard of that form of anxiety before, but it's everywhere. I have it. Yeah, it's. Uh, it, I mean, that's that's actually something we should be talking about, right? The the anxiety of of feeling like you're at the mercy of other people's health and safety behaviors, right. which used to be something I thought I had control over. <laughs> it right. Doesn't matter what other right. people do, I can be safe. Um, and unless you want to be locked down or quarantined all the time, that that's not the case anymore. I mean, there, there are two questions here. One is the managing the anxiety itself, but the other is how to have better conversations with people who are vaccine hesitant. Have you had conversations with people that are vaccine hesitant? Yeah, actually. Um, how, how do they go? How have they gone? <laughs> there's a whole spectrum. 
So what what happened, I'll give you the quick backstory uh, for context. So a few years ago, I found out that one of my best friends from growing up is strongly opposed to vaccinations of all kind. So his kids haven't gotten any. Um, he's, you know, he, he thinks it's it's dangerous and there's a conspiracy that, you know, sort of big pharma is involved in to, you know, to shove, basically to shove this, you know, this product into our bodies that we don't need. Um, and it's not good for, you know, for the immune system. And anyway, long story short, after a few days when he visited of arguing back and forth, I swore I would never talk to him again about vaccines because it just wasn't good for our friendship. And I was, I was becoming more stubborn and uh, I felt, you know, actually hurting the cause as opposed to helping it. And it's not like I think that every single vaccine should be blindly injected into every baby, right? But right. Uh, I think we, we live in a world where vaccines are one of the few interventions empirically that have saved billions of lives. Right. And so, you know, I think we ought to have open conversations <laughs> about getting them. So COVID happens. And before COVID happened, I ended up writing a whole chapter of my book, Think Again, about um, this vaccine whisperer uh, who's brought science to conversations with people who are resistant to vaccines. And then um, I'm finishing writing this chapter. The COVID vaccines come out and I say, OK, I, I owe it to myself and my friend to see if I can open his mind. And this is also a great opportunity to figure out, have I learned anything from all this research about opening other people's minds and getting them to think again? So let me just start with the with the bad news, which is he has not considered getting a vaccination or having any of his children going for it. But he's a healthcare professional too, so he um, you know he he's very informed. Um, and you know every time I bring in a study, he has a counter study. Uh, so uh, I you know I didn't expect to change his behavior or his mind. What I wanted to do is figure out whether I could open his mind to the possibility. Uh, as opposed to just being shut down. And I think the the best conversation I had with him was when I said, okay, just tell me, what are, what are the odds that you would get a COVID vaccine? And he said, well, they, they got to be pretty low. I said, what? Wait, wait, I'm sorry. You didn't say zero? How is this possible? Like, what do you mean you would ever consider getting a COVID vaccine? This is completely against everything you've ever said to me. He said, well, you know, I, if it were 100% fatal and, you know, extremely transmissible, uh, or if I were, you know, 80 years old and I wasn't worried about the long-term risks, this was back in January, then of course I would consider it. And I said, give me a percentage. He said, I don't know, maybe, you know, half a percent, one percent. And I think for the first time in the years that we've discussed this, I finally saw the nuance in his views. And he was willing to admit that, you know, it wasn't just an open and shut case. And I think um what, what I took away from that conversation was that instead of giving him answers, I needed to ask him questions. And that simple question, you know, well, how likely are you, then led to a whole conversation about, well, what evidence would change your mind? What would convince you that this is safe? And, you know, now we can, we can actually go back and forth and, and talk about the, you know, the science as, it's, as it evolves and what would shift his opinion. And I feel like it's opened a dialogue that didn't exist before. The problem is that people aren't taking the time to do what Adam said, which is have asking questions and not shaming. And this goes back to one of the reasons that, you know, I, I fell in love with your philosophy when I first met you, Adam, which was this idea of parenting. And I think that we have to get to a place of parenting our, our, each other 
and which ultimately means nurturing and taking the time and not shaming and being kind and trying to think about, hey, we're all in this together. We've never been more in something together in our entire lives and in like the lives of our ancestors as we are right now with this whole COVID thing. You know, we really, every, we all, all of our behavior is depending on each other's behavior and our, and our future is depending on each other's behavior. So, I mean, I think the, the, the problem is that people just go immediate to sh- immediately to shame um, rather than wanting to have a conversation. I think there's there's so much to that. And, you know, it's I guess in some ways that that's the very heart of this approach to, to having better conversations, whether you're talking to somebody with a different view about vaccines or you're you know talking to your political arch enemy um, is this technique that psychologists call motivational interviewing, which is you you start from the assumption that I don't know what's motivating you to act the way you are right now. Um, and that that comes with some humility, right? I don't have all the answers about your behavior, but I'm awfully curious to find out what makes you tick and what might shift your your plans. And so then I asked non-judgmental questions to try to understand, you know, what what's leading you to not get vaccinated? What would lead you to to reconsider that? And then you start to generate some reasons in that balanced discussion um, that might actually be more likely to convince you than anything that I could say, right? Because um, the moment that I try to tell you your behavior needs to change or you're wrong is the moment you put up your defenses. It's like I've become the world's most annoying prosecutor. You're like, okay, I'm going to show up as the best defense attorney on earth and we're, we're not going to make any progress. Uh, where if you generate your own reasons, all of a sudden you can say, all right, well, I just was persuaded by somebody I like and trust more than anyone on earth, me. And that becomes hopefully something you take more ownership over. And, you know, instead, Hilaria, as you were saying, we're blaming and shaming people, Um, even just labeling people anti-vaxxers. That paints them into a corner where, well, if I want to be that or I'm going to be somebody who's threatening the freedom of other people, I guess that's where I belong. I think if we, you know, if we choose a much more open stance, like, you know, talking about vaccine hesitancy and saying, you know, there are lots of people with reasonable hesitations about a vaccine. I'd love to better understand yours. Um, You know, then then we can open up a dialogue as opposed to a judgy monologue. The problem is, yes, we are staunchly labeling people and we fall into labels in order to try to be like, well, if you're asking me, I'm more aligned with that. But I might have one percent in that direction. And you're absolutely right. Once you get 1% there, you're not entirely there. We're all on a spectrum. Yeah. I I, I think it's really sad that at this point in, in, in this American experiment, that identities are anchored in, in our opinions instead of our values, mm-hmm. right? So I define myself based on what I believe is true and false, as opposed to saying I define myself as somebody who values generosity and freedom, um, or curiosity and integrity, um, mm-hmm. and I think one of the uh, one of the missed opportunities I think for in a lot of these conversations is to say, you know what, regardless of what you believe is true or false, let's talk about what you think is important, right? I like when I talk to somebody who you know I think one of the most common reasons I'm seeing for people to hesitate now on vaccinations is they don't want their freedom taken away. Like you know what. I believe in freedom too. I think that's one of our fundamental values in America and as a democracy. And I want I want freedom from your germs. <laughs> I hope yeah. you can relate to that, yeah. right? Which yeah. is a very different conversation than, okay, you want freedom and I'm trying to control and mandate your behavior. Right. Ilaria and I have many friends who are not in the arts. They're business people and very successful business people in New York. 
And they've told me that half of their staff are not going to come back to the office at some point that they want to they, they want to stay home, which I found fascinating. I thought that going to an office and, and being a part of that culture where you work was something that was ultimately appealing to people. Apparently, there's a massive tract of people that it's not. They want to stay home. But what do you think about that? I, I'm pretty excited about it personally. You are. Uh, yeah, for a couple of reasons. One is uh, back in 2018, I went to a bunch of CEOs and founders and I said, hey, we, we have a growing body of evidence that as long as people are in the office half the week, if they work from anywhere the other half, they're more productive, more satisfied, more likely to stay, and there's no cost to relationships. So let's run a remote Friday experiment and every leader I pitch balked. We can't do that. They're going to they're gonna never show up. They're going to procrastinate all the time. Our culture is going to fall apart. Right. And obviously that, that didn't You're going to be unmanageable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, which I think was, is usually a greater problem with management <laughs> than with the people they're right. managing. But uh, I think the, the, the really interesting trend is most of the people who want to stay home um, are basically people with young kids, uh, largely who live in the suburbs. Uh, the people who want to come back to the office for the most part, if you look at the data, are, um, are you know, young people who are single uh, or empty nesters uh, who see coming to work as a place where they find structure and community. I think what we're missing in this conversation is this is actually not fundamentally about where you work. It's about freedom and flexibility. I want to have choices about where I work and when I work. And I think the the employers that are announcing, you know, if if you're not in the office, you're not engaged, are completely missing the point. Um, why can't I, if I'm productive, have one or two days to work from anywhere? Um, why can't I, if I've been able to do it during a freaking pandemic, <laughs> figure out how to do remote work part of the time uh, when COVID is over? And I think there are, there are a lot of leaders right now who are clinging to an old way of working. When if you again, if you look at the data, more than half of Americans want to work on their own in their next job, um, either as entrepreneurs or in the creative economy. And it's not necessarily because they're, you know, they're wanting to, to not have a boss. It's because they've gotten a taste of that freedom and flexibility and they don't want to give it up. And I think that the companies that don't adapt are going to have a really hard time attracting and retaining talented people who can work anywhere. That's interesting. Beyond COVID and the changes that have been wrought by COVID uh, here, um, I sense that, uh, you know, that, that in America, we swing so radically, so violently, like a pendulum from one side to the other politically. We had Bill Clinton, then we had George W. Bush, and then we had Barack Obama, and then we had uh, uh, Trump, only one term granted. And now we have Joe Biden. We go back and forth. Uh, the liberals, the Democrats who are in charge now, uh, they've got Biden in the White House and, and his opposition. They're going to get all muscled up and they're going to raise all their money and they're going to run whoever they run. And they may take the White House and, and after one term, who knows? But what I'm thinking is, is why do you think Americans take politics uh, so casually in this country? I mean, and by that, I mean, uh, we talk about election protection and election integrity and things like that, but we don't really do anything about it, you know, in terms of voting machines and making sure that there's real integrity. Why, why do you think Americans are um, they're all about like anthems and speeches and, 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 and slogans and things like that? But the real depth and the real meat and the real viscera of democracy seems to be kind of withering away in, in my lifetime. Huh. I. I probably haven't given this enough thought, but just off the top of my head, I think, you know, until very recently, um, 
there was there was no collective memory of what it was like to live in an undemocratic country. Right. I think we've we've taken our freedoms for granted in a lot of ways. Right. Uh, and I think for a lot of people, the past however many years have been a wake up call, uh, and maybe that dynamic is shifting a little bit. I think the other thing is there. I mean, there are only a few countries in the world bigger than ours, and. You know, I think if you if you live in many of the countries in Western Europe, even right, you feel like your vote counts a little bit more uh, because you're you're a much bigger fraction of the population. Uh, if you're you know if your country has five or ten million people, it feels like your neighborhood or your community or your city actually counts. Whereas in America, no, we're just a drop in the bucket. And I think there's something about that scale that makes it really difficult for people to feel like my actions make a difference. Uh, and so often we just throw up our hands and say, "All right, well, what can I do?" One thing I want to ask you. One last thing for me is that um, climate change. What have you observed about the pandemic that worries you about our preparedness for? as a society for the changes coming with climate change? Well, let's let's start with the hoarding behavior. <laughs> the, the people just with endless bottles of hand sanitizer. Right, right. Um, I loved, I think it was in Denmark, uh, <laughs> the sign that was put up in a convenience store that said it was, I think it was $3.99 for one buy bottle and then $3,000 for a second bottle. Right, right, right. To try to <laughs> signal, so take what you need, no more, right? Um, oh I think... I think that's worrisome. I think the other thing that's you know that's concerning me on a more macro level is is the way that the media continues to cover these issues, right? So um, there's all this coverage of COVID deniers, um, the same way that the media have covered climate deniers. And if you look at the analysis um, that was published a couple of years ago of over <laughs> it was over a million um, news sources, the data showed that the media actually gives more attention to climate deniers than to scientists, right? There, there is no purpose in platforming somebody who is right. not willing to engage with the right. best possible information on the table. Right. That's not to say we shouldn't have conversations about people who are reasonably skeptical about what's causing climate change or the rate at which it's happening or the appropriate solutions to it, right? Those are conversations we need to have. But if you look at the spectrum of climate views, what you see is only about 10% of people fall in this pure denier category where they're completely dismissive in the US. Right. And those people get more airtime than anybody else. Right. That's um, so interesting. I think we we obviously we need to give yeah I mean it's it's way out of proportion. We need to give scientists obviously more of that spotlight, but we should also highlight the what the spectrum looks like from the extremely alarmed right the people who think that the planet's going to hell tomorrow to say you know what you don't have to be in that camp in order to be you know conscious of climate change. Um, there's a whole group of people who are concerned um, or who are a little bit more um, on the fence around saying. It appears to be happening. I think it's human caused. Um, I'm a little worried about it, but I don't know how serious it is, and I don't know quite what we need to do about it. Right? That is a massive movable middle, much like the vaccine hesitant. Um, and we're not talking to those people. We're not talking about those people. We desperately need to engage them if we want to make progress. But that doesn't that doesn't sell as many uh, newspapers, magazines, and keep you on the TV channel. That, that I mean, that's ultimately if if we could separate somehow that the fact that the news has become such a business, you know, and and allowing real conversations and really being able to also for our, ourselves, we'd be able to focus our mind on the real conversations because we're feeding the problem. We're feeding the business. It's not just the news fault. 
You know, it's that we are saying, okay, well, I'm going to change the channel. If you're not sensationalizing something for me, I'm so bored and I'm going to go to mm, channel that is going to sensationalize something for me. If we start consuming more of the news and the real stuff, they will start feeding that need. You know what I think the is so- The the egg. I, 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 think, I think you're spot on, Hilaria. And I think one of the things that's it's so interesting to me about that is- um, so I, re- I wrote a whole chapter in this uh, on this and think again um, on, on how we can have more nuanced and more complex conversations about climate change. And immediate pushback from some journalists was, but nuance doesn't go viral. Like, yeah. Actually, it can if you're thoughtful about your headlines. Let's not be lazy. Let's try to figure out how to make nuance interesting, how to evoke curiosity. I, I found a couple examples that I ended up writing about. One was a headline where someone said, uh, planting a trillion trees is not going to solve climate change. Boom. That is a headline immediately that makes me want to learn more. Uh, but yeah. it also doesn't shove down my throat the idea that, you know, that the planet is burning. And if I don't do something tomorrow, everyone's going to die. Right. right. Um, another one that I yeah. thought was brilliant was a headline that said, um, I am in the environmental movement and I don't care if you recycle. Ooh. There's nuance there. Wait a minute. This right. person is really concerned about the climate and they think recycling is a waste of time and they're not going to judge me for it. All right. Now I don't feel like the big jerk because I forgot to take out my recycling. I want to know more. Right. And right. this is I mean, the two of you are in an amazing position to try to shape this. Right. To think about what can we do to take our performing skills um, and to take the, you know, the platforms that we have access to and make nuance a little more interesting. You want to be our manager? <laughs> Thank you so much. I mean, I've really enjoyed talking to you. I can't wait to dig in, dig into your new book. Thank you for everything. Really grateful. Well, you stay safe. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Same to both of you. Now, you've met Adam before, correct? Correct. I'm envious of you because he really, really is a smart guy. And I, and I love people who can put their perspective into in, into words that are sharp and smart and concise, but available. You know, he's not, he's not like talking over you. He's a super bright guy. Yeah. He's a wise teacher. People can be wise and they're not teachers because they're not capable of conveying that information. And people can be teachers with not a lot of wisdom to give. And he is both of those things. He is both wise and he's capable of teaching us his wisdom. So we're very grateful that he, that Adam, you took time to speak with us today. And I, we hope you guys enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Adam Grant. Talk to you next week. Thanks for hanging out with us. Make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And share the show with your friends and help us grow. We'll talk to you guys next week. 